Next up, Trista Harris. Trista Harris is a philanthropic futurist and is nationally known as a passionate advocate for leaders in the philanthropic and nonprofit sectors. Trista's work has been covered by the Chronicle of Philanthropy, Forbes, CNN, the New York Times, and numerous social sector blogs. She is also the author of How to Become a Nonprofit Rockstar and Future Good. She is the president of Future Good, a consultancy focused on helping visionaries build a better future. You're listening to Conversations with Shanta, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. So Trista, the futurist, <laughs> welcome to Conversations with Shonda. I wanted to talk to you for a while, but it feels like a good moment because you are getting ready to make a big transition. Yes. Yes. Would you like to share what that is? For sure. So a Minnesotan born and bred, and I'm recently an empty nester. And so we are getting out of Dodge and moving to Santa Monica, California for the heat and the innovation and just a brand new vibe. And I'm really, really looking forward to it. So is this the first time in your adult life that you have moved away from the Twin Cities? I, I went to Howard in D.C. for college. I did not expect to come back to Minnesota because I am not a fan of the cold. Okay. Um, but we had our daughter, and it's a great place to raise kids. And so we decided, let's come back, and let's do this, and let's see it through all the way through school. Uh, but always knew that I would be someplace else. And I, I think California is great for a lot of besides weather reasons. Um, but the the culture of innovation and new and stretching and trying is exactly what I want on this phase of life. Part of me thinking about you moving, thinking about what's next, and even for me, right? Like I'm almost an empty nest. You're so close, so close. I'm so close. <laughs> thinking about life and transitions, yeah. it's been such a moment. I think many people have been thinking about what's next with what's happening right now. And I'm feeling a lot of angst. And many people are just stuck. Yeah. And so were you stuck in the thought of what's next? Or like, how did you know that it was time to make a move? Well, I'm a futurist. <laughs> and so I spend a lot of time thinking about what's next. And not just for our clients and not just for our business, but for myself. So what does my ideal future look like? What does it look like when I wake up in the morning? What do I do? Who am I spending time with? Um, how are you my, uh, using my gift and talents? Who am I spending um, my friendship time with? How am I seeing my family? I have a picture of what that looks like. And as I was creating that picture, it's a little bit harder to do a shared vision. So with my husband and I, it's like, okay, what part of these visions are common? What are the things that we both want to see in this next phase of our lives? And a sense of ease was a big piece of it. We have been hustling, raising these kids, growing our businesses, really just like constantly moving forward. And this phase, this phase really feels like, how do we make it easier? What does it look like if everything isn't a struggle? What does it look like if we don't have to get up at six o'clock in the morning and shovel the driveway and clean a big old house that's now empty because the kids don't live there? Like, how do we move into something that that feels different? And so. I've been on a journey the last couple of years to figure out where is that place that feels like that ideal future. And so we visited a lot of cities around the country and um, stayed in Airbnb so that we can be in neighborhoods and like, does this feel right? Do we like this coffee shop? What's the view like? Like just to start to get that feeling and Santa Monica immediately was like, oh, this is it. This is the this is the, the feeling that we want in this next phase of life. Maybe not forever, but at least for a little bit. And will you continue to run your businesses there? Mm -hmm. Or are yep. you evolving what you do as well as where you live? So for my business, our clients are around the country and some around the world. So we have already, team is already virtual. We've built it around this idea that it isn't about place. We have a lot of clients that are in uh, on the West Coast. My husband's business is really Minnesota-based. And so he is keeping his team here and he's going to expand to California. And so for him, it's about developing new relationships and understanding what that looks like. 
For me, it's just I'm doing my Zoom calls from someplace else. And for me, it's a new place to visit. And of course, <laughs> of course. yeah, my friends are, are, are not unhappy that it's a lovely beach town to come visit. I love it. I love it. So we just sort of jumped in. So I have a couple of questions, and I'm sure the listeners want to know, number one, what are the businesses? So yeah. what, what do you do? I am the president and CEO of Future Good, which is a consulting firm that helps foundations, nonprofits, and social purpose businesses envision a more beautiful and equitable future. So sometimes that looks like strategic planning. We start with a different frame where we help organizations look 20 to 50 years in the future. If you fully met your mission, if you were completely successful, what would the community and causes that you care about look like? And then what would you have to look like organizationally to make that true? And then we work backwards and we help them figure out what do you need to do in the next three to five years to move you closer to that ideal future. And so we work with some of the largest foundations in the country. Uh, We also work with really small grassroots organizations that are doing amazing work. But all of it is really about this frame of a more beautiful and equitable future. And you define yourself as a futurist. Mm -hmm. Yep. What does that mean? So I am a philanthropic futurist, which means I'm interested in the future for people that do good for a living. And the tools of futurism are you sort of act as an analyst. It isn't, you know, a crystal ball and you're looking, what do I think is going to happen? You look at what's happening in this moment and it's giving you clues about what the future can look like. And you're, you're moving those trends forward and saying, what could that look like in the future? The other part of my futurism work is backcasting, where instead of saying, here's where I think the future is going, you say, where do I want it to go? And then what do I have to do to make that possible? And so we help organizations understand where trends look like they're going. And if you want it to be different, here's the way that you can change that trajectory of that work. Are there trends happening now in the philanthropic sector that uh, you can share with us? Yeah, the, the field is changing really quickly. So we are living in a time of exponential change where change gets faster and more severe um, and that's a re- it's a really difficult t- time for people that like predictable, clear change that that is over. We don't live in that time anymore. And for the rest of our lifetime, this pace of change will be getting faster and faster. And so for foundations and nonprofits, it means that you can no longer react to change after it happens. Instead, you have to understand what are the what's the long term future that you want to we want to move to and how do you harness that volatility to be able to get there faster so the the pandemic is a great example of this we had a number of clients that had a really clear vision of the future and when the pandemic happened they said okay in this moment there's more attention to living wage there's more attention to public health there's more attention to workers rights if our foundation or nonprofit is working on one of those areas we better dig down and figure out what to do to harness this moment to move it forward i saw a lot of organizations struggling during this time and they were unclear about their mission and there were so many needs that they jumped in and they said normally we do small business development but right now we're going to be a food shelf because it seems like people need food are you, are you the right organization to be doing that? Is there possibly things that small businesses need at this moment that maybe you should be focusing on that? But if you have a future frame, it allows you to um, to really manage and harness that volatility so that you can get there a lot faster than you anticipated. So one of the things that I've been thinking and exploring quite a bit about is how does the governance model need to change in order for organizations, nonprofits, and philanthropic institutions to do that, right? Because, you know, that model has been so heavily on, you know, compliance and predictability, um, you know, and forecasting. Um, so so what, what would you advise a trustee that wants to really predict a future that's quite unpredictable? Yeah, I think it's the responsibility of organizational leadership and boards to build those futurism skills. So I go around the country and talk to organizations, what I always say is, it should not just be Trista Harris bouncing from place to place telling you what's coming next. Within your organization, you have to build this future muscle so that you understand the future of early childhood education, the future of housing, the future of anything that you are working on. You are best positioned to notice those trends and to understand what's coming next. And so for for boards, 
I want you to have a future committee where you're thinking about the very, very long-term future, not just your term, but 20, 30, 40 years in the future, what's coming and how are we paying attention to it? I want you to judge your leadership on that long-term vision and not the volatility that we see in this moment. There's a possibility that we'll enter into a recession. If all you're keeping track of is donation numbers during this time and you go, the leader's doing a terrible job, They, they can't bring in this money, not paying attention to the unique moment that you're in and what it's calling you to, uh, your organization isn't going to meet your mission. And that's that's the full responsibility of a board. And so the practices of strategic planning, so where, what happens with that, right? Like, so when is the time to be future focused, right? Yeah. So what I hear you saying is build it into your practice yeah. and the practice that we've lived into is one of you you have a plan, yeah. you have a strategy, yeah. You, you work that plan, you measure that plan. For sure. And then you evolve it, perhaps. Yeah. I, I would love every one of your listeners to think about how their strategic plan served them in 2020. So you had a three to five year plan and you were pretty sure here's exactly what we're going to do. Here's this incremental change that we're going to work on. Then the whole world is different. And then what do you do? And so with at Future Good, what we do is we help you craft that very long term vision we help you develop a rolling three-year plan. And so you know what you're doing this year, and then at the end of the year you reassess and you say, what did we knock out of the park that we need to set a whole new goal around because it was amazing? What completely struggled and maybe we shouldn't be doing it at all, let's reassess. And then you, for the second and third years, you revise the plan and then you add another year. So the intention with our strategic planning method is not every three years you come and start fresh and say what should we be doing it's that every single year you are revising a plan that is taking you to success for your organization and every year you have a clearer picture of what the immediate future looks like and so you you take that and you adjust it a strategic plan should not be a printed out static thing that sits in a file cabinet and is never addressed again Every single day, you should be working that plan and moving it forward, and it should be a part of your regular ongoing practice. Have you determined sort of the archetypes of staff that live in organizations, (laughs) right? Like, because I think about, like, I imagine that when you go into the organizations, there's someone there that's that's sitting there like, I've been telling y'all. Yes, right. And then there's someone like, I don't even understand what she's talking about. But there's one or two people that are sitting there like, this is what I've been saying, Mm -hmm. and it has been going, and it has not been heard. Yeah. Within every organization, there is that future thinker that is trying to help you get in front of what's coming next. And often they feel really lonely in that work. So a lot of what Future Good does is brings together those future thinkers from lots of different organizations to help them find their people Mm -hmm. so that they feel encouraged as they're doing this work. And then you've got the naysayers, which, you know, as I talk to folks about future trends, I heard somebody in a a small group once said, I am so glad that I'm retiring so I don't have to deal with any of this. And I'm like, will you still be on earth? Are you still going to need to like address the change that's happening around you? And I, you know, I have lived through this time of transformation when things used to be more linear and you could predict what the next year was going to look like. And so I can see how frustrating it is for people that are like, I've been doing this job for 20 years and I know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing next year. Um, the, the world is changing and we as people need to change. Yeah. I mean, you could run your business that way. Yeah. 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 You could. I mean, it's just a, it, it just matters. Um, how relevant you want to be. And, you know, I was in a recent conversation and just saying that, you know, from one board meeting to the next, COVID hit. From one board minute to the next, George Mm -hmm. Floyd was murdered, right? And so the world changed around us. Mm -hmm. And if your team is not ready to move, right, if you don't have the social and emotional Mm skill sets on a team Mm -hmm. to be able to address sort of the circumstances in a way that allows for the conversations to be thoughtful yeah. and on time, then what you, I think you do is you go back to what's familiar. Yeah. People are very comfortable in their expertise, and I get that. And it feels good to be comfortable in your expertise. When, when the pandemic started, I had been doing trends for years that said global pandemics are much more likely because we travel around the world and we're encroaching in natural spaces. There's 
these reasons why there should have been a pandemic. That did not mean that I was like rolled up, not rolled up under my desk when the pandemic started. Like, what is this speed? What's going to happen? I think the difference in mindset is the resiliency to be able to move out of that space quickly and to say, this is really difficult. And I have a responsibility to create the specific change in the world. How do I do it in this moment? What am I being called to do? And I'm a big believer that mindset is the most important part to understand that you actually can influence the future, that it doesn't happen to you. You create it with the decisions that you make every single day. And when you enter your work with that mindset, um, it's liberating in a bunch of ways because you don't feel like you're just constantly fighting off the next bad thing. Instead, you are creating a different path forward. So we're sitting at a time where there has been a number of efforts that have moved forward in the DEI space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a black woman, I've been around um, many intersections of black women that have been gathering and thinking about um, their roles, their leaderships, um, the minimization of their leadership, the success of their leadership, all of those things. Um, and one of the questions that I have for you very specifically is, what do you see as the future of Black women in philanthropy? I love it. I love it. I think this is a shining moment for Black women in philanthropy. They've been leading always. We are, have been behind the scenes, holding things together, moving forward strategy, and not receiving recognition, credit, um, that work being sabotaged sometimes within organizations. And now we have landed at a time where people realize that black women's ability to understand conditions and what's coming next, because you have to, you have to be able to navigate change and move forward in um, a lot of uneasy environments is really useful for organizations in this moment. And I think on the DEI front, we're seeing a change in philanthropy. I've, I've worked in the field for a really long time and I've seen the sort of times of, we're gonna do a press release, something bad happens in the world and we're gonna send a note out about it and let people know we're thinking about it. We have completely transformed for most organizations and moved beyond that to looking internally inside the organization and saying, what are our hiring practices? How are we spending and investing our dollars organizationally? Um, how are we using our voice as a community citizen? When do we stand up and who do we speak up for? And it's being baked into the organizations. And as a result of that, we're seeing more black women that are leading and running organizations because boards are saying, well, who's going to help us do this? <laughs> who has the skill sets that are necessary to make this real? And often it's black women within organizations. I think the other change that we are seeing for black women in philanthropy is the old model of work was about giving everything until you literally die at your desk. Heart attacks, diabetes, cancer, strokes. I, I can think of the entire generation before me in the field that gave up everything to be able to create a space and to do that work. And it's what they felt was necessary at that time. I'm seeing something so different that's happening now where black women are saying, how do I bring my full self to work? How do I take time for respite and for stepping back and refreshing? And how do I also create that for my entire team in a way that this work is suddenly much more sustainable? So I think the future for black women in philanthropy is really bright, not just on the impact, but how they're going to be able to navigate and transform themselves through that process as well. So on that note, and there's a lot of language that's came through around radical self-care in terms of a care community, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. you know, not so much accountability, but just having, you know, women a around you and, mm -hmm. and caring um, for yourself and... We talk about it in terms of radical self-care, right? Taking breaks, getting massages, doing those things. And we talk a lot about fatigue and, and fatigue as a result of particularly what has happened over the last several years. Um, but we don't really talk about mental health. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that that's going to be more common in our language? Because it's sort of embedded in what we're discussing. But it feels like it's been an externalized exercise mm -hmm. to what we're doing, particularly in the social sector, but we're not really talking about it in terms of ourselves yeah. and our colleagues and what we need to do to care for our employees. Yeah. I think that organizationally we forget that the people that we employ have often experienced whatever issue that we're working on. And so working with clients or 
moving forward public policy can bring back generational trauma. And people don't notice that's what's happening. And we saw a lot of that after the murder of George Floyd. And I have a a network of DEI leaders that work within foundations. And what I heard consistently from them was, I am getting from my CEO, what are we going to do about this? Come on, let's figure out a plan. Let's get moving. Are we going to do some grant making? And they're like, I'm grieving at this moment. I am trying to navigate my own feelings about safety for myself and for my children and for my community. And I cannot jump out and develop a new grant plan for you real quick. I need a moment to be able to consider. Um, And so I, I think that we're moving to a space where people can feel that that's happening. There's also the collective grief of the pandemic that has not been processed in any way, shape or form. And so what happens is there are moments of new grief that happen. New family member dies, something happens in the community. All of the built up grief from the last couple of years comes out in this moment and we're surprised at our response. And it's because we haven't been able to to process all of that collective trauma that we've been through. So for organizational leaders, you better make sure that your health insurance covers mental health and you better talk to your staff about how important it is to take care of their mental health and give them time off when they need it to care for themselves and to be able to to navigate this really complicated world that we're in because um, I think people have not yet felt the the true cost of this time that we have lived through and our mental health is the the first area that's really suffering so talk to me about how this girl from the south side south side tiger south side Side high school yeah um becomes a futurist like what is the path to that because i don't remember seeing that in the career fair it was not in the career fair so i i went to south high school uh, the best high school in Minneapolis. Well, you know, I got an argument for that. For but sure. I'll, uh, do I? For sure. And I had known since I was seven or eight that I wanted to work in the nonprofit sector. It was super clear that that was the path. My mom had volunteered at Pillsbury House. Um, and she was volunteering in the theater. And I just spent a lot of time there. And it was this beautiful multi-service community center that had everything. There was arts and there was childcare and there was food. And it just... Every time I went, I was so excited. And I used to draw these um, pictures. People would do like their Barbie dream home. And I was drawing community centers. Maybe it'd have a zoo. Maybe there'd be a slide that goes from the first floor to the second floor. Um, and just knew that that was the space for me. So when when I left um, Minneapolis, I went to Howard uh, in D.C. and studied sociology and public policy went to graduate school at Humphrey for nonprofit management and public policy and really thought that I would run a place like Pillsbury um, because that felt like the place that you could meet people's basic needs and then they could engage civically and be a vibrant part of their community because those needs were met. And I had an amazing mentor in school, uh, Bill Diaz, who had worked at the Ford Foundation and had come to Minnesota to, to, to teach. And he had actually created um, a, a public policy program that was paying for my graduate school. And so we had this great connection and we sat down and did the career talk and I said, the community center, and I want to do the thing. And he was like, number one, you're a little intense. <laughs> so <laughs> chill out, just, just chill. Please so take a breath. Um, and he said, you love to fix things. And you love to see the big picture. If you work in one organization, you're going to drive everybody batty, which every staff that I've had since then can 100% agree. He said, people don't want things fixed. They want them to be consistent. Mm -hmm. He said, work at a foundation because you will be able to have this 30,000-foot view of the sector. You'll be able to give dollars to create change. He said, you'll still drive people nuts, but they'll put up with it because you're giving them money. And you will diffuse your energy <laughs> over mm-hmm. many different organizations. He said, but as a young person and as a woman of color, it is going to be almost impossible to get that first job in the field. And so fundraise first so that you know what it feels like to be on the other side of the table and get to know the foundations and decide what is the sort of place that you want to work, which was hurtful advice in the moment. And mm-hmm absolutely on track. And so I fundraised for a number of nonprofit organizations and did some volunteer work with the St. Paul Foundation. They had a program officer position open and 
uh, one of the program officers there called and said, I think, you know, you want to be in philanthropy. This is a really great opportunity. And I had just gotten my first like big girl job where I was running <laughs> a department. I was director of advancement and communications and fundraising and had a team. And I had been there less than a year. And I said, you know, I just took this big job and I would love to work at the St. Paul Foundation, but like maybe next year. She said, we have not had an opening in eight years and we will not have another right. for eight. If you want to do this, you should apply. And so applied and, and made it through the process. I was probably in my mid-20s at that time and was 20 years younger than all of my coworkers. Right. So let's let's talk yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's just talk about that. Yes. So you go and you work for a community foundation. Mm-hmm. You go. You're working in philanthropy. Yeah. What was that like, right? Because it's a very different mm-hmm. environment. Yeah. So I tell yeah. people like you confront privilege in a different way in that mm-hmm. space. Like there's things that you you confront that you you maybe don't experience. Yeah. So did you yeah. confront things and what was that like? Yeah, I think for me it was feeling like I deeply understood foundations from applying for grants for a number of years. And so I know what you do and I know how this works. What I had thought happened on the other side of the curtain was this very thoughtful, long process where we were developing deep relationships and we'd call each other and how are things going girl tell me how can I help I am here for you um and my first week brand new program officer uh this was the olden days uh 30 gigantic file folders with grant applications dropped on my desk next week tell us which ones are moving forward I would I would like to have coffee with people and learn about what's happening no I'm gonna need you to read these grants and so just pushed into the deep end and I I googled uh how to be a program officer (laughs) because there's no training you just no training you start and you are there I found EPIP emerging practitioners in philanthropy reached out and said hey you guys seem to be the ones that like tell new people what to do please help me they said we don't have a Minnesota chapter but you should start one I was less than a month in on the job uh and then I started Minnesota's emerging practitioners in philanthropy chapter Let's just talk about me um, moving over to the Minneapolis Foundation in my 40s. And so everyone in EPIP was not in their 40s. No, they yeah, were yeah. very yes. young. I'm like, is there an emergent practitioners in their mid-career? Yes. I mean, not so much. There's so many people that change sectors. EPIP is for everybody, regardless of I know they did age. say that. They did tell me that. They yeah. did. But it, it feels like, I felt like I had a, a very um, full career in the nonprofit sector, And it felt like that did not translate when I went into the philanthropic field, that the relationships and the network and what I needed to know was so different from what I had learned before that you really struggle to find your footing. I have found that affinity groups are the best place to find that footing because it's groups of people that are willing to help you figure out how to navigate and find your path forward. And that was really my lifeline in those first years as a program officer. Yeah, I just think it's important. I wanted to raise the point because in this moment, there are a lot of newer, younger um, people moving into the philanthropic space or into nonprofit space that um, have not been there before. or They might be the first, the only, like they're coming into some new space. Yeah. And it's a moment for organizations, particularly those that are being intentional about diversifying Mm -hmm. where they have not been as diverse with their teams to be thoughtful about how they onboard. Yeah. Because it can be very difficult and it's one thing to attract. It's, it's another thing to sustain. Yeah. And train, train your staff. (laughs) We just, we bring people in and just say, here you go. Um, GrantCraft is an amazing resource for people that are new to philanthropy. It's They've got guides on saying yes, saying no, using racial equity lens. It's amazing. But the reason that they created it as a tool initially, it was a part of the Ford Foundation, and the CEO of the Ford Foundation was going to a, a faraway trip. It was like a 20-hour flight with her board chair, which is like who wants to be sitting next to their board chair for 20, 20 hours on a flight? And she's like, I knew that I needed to just ask him a bunch of questions mm-hmm. so that yeah, the board chair's keep, like, keep, no. keep him talking and just, and so he, he was somebody that, um, bought companies and then raised the value and sold them and whatever. Uh, and she said, well, how do you decide 
what to which ones to buy and this is probably you know 10 minutes into the plane ride and he goes oh you look at the training department that is how you know the strength and quality of an organization is the strength of their training and she said i sat the rest of those 19 hours terrified that he was going to ask me what is the training function at the ford foundation because it, it didn't exist just like it doesn't exist in most foundations and so grant craft was created out of this idea of how do we actually train our staff to do this work well and not let them sort of bumble their way through trying to figure it out? Because there is both an art and a science to grant making and you need to learn both. Well, what are the training trends in philanthropy right now? Yeah, well, one, train actually training people. I think uh, I've seen a ton of improvement in training new staff on the ways that your organization does work. So if you are a community foundation that is about deep relationship in place and you show up at events and people know you, train your staff and let them know that that is the case. If you are a private foundation that has two staff members and you get a thousand applications and all you can do is get the checks out and that's it, make sure that people are really clear. I've also seen a ton of really great training on racial equity and diversity, equity, and inclusion in these particular roles through the million different change philanthropy organizations that are all doing this great training. I'm seeing more foundations invest in that for lots of staff, not just the program staff. What does that look like for your grants managers? What does that look like for folks in communications and operations? Let's make sure that this frame lives everywhere, not just in program. And I think that's where I was sort of thinking you were going to go, is that there's a lot of training in the DEI space. Mm -hmm. I'm curious on whether or not that training is actually connected to the business. Mm -hmm. Right, like, because, you know, in Minnesota, right, you're working across um, the country and the globe. Mm -hmm. In Minnesota, it's the IDI. There's other types of training, but it's not so much around. It's how we're approaching our work in our business through an equitable lens. And what does that look like and how do we approach it? It's a little bit more um, global Mm -hmm. than um, unique or specific or customized to the business model. I think there is a little bit of this falling in love with like, what's my racism score? Like there's a lot of assessments that can tell you a lot about yourself as an individual and leave employees in a space where where it's about them. What, what am I going to do? Am I ready to do this sort of work? We should hold off on any equity efforts until I as an individual am ready to do it. Um, And with our clients, we do the opposite. We do not do any assessments as we start. We start with what does an equitable future look like for this organization internally and externally? And what sort of institution do we have to be for that to be true? And then we work backwards and we say, so what would this look like in our grants management side? What would this look like in operations? What would this look like in HR? And then suddenly the staff in those areas have a picture of the aspirational version of their role and realize they better get it together and they are signing up for the trainings and they are figuring out what it takes to build their skill set instead of if you start the opposite way then people stop the progress because they're worried about where they're going to be on that journey Mm -hmm. and for me it is about the impact that the institution is having and how do you make sure that you're your team skills up to be able to have that impact, but you have to start with the mission. I hear that. So you went to a St. Paul Foundation, and then after that, did you go to Headwaters? Mm-hmm, I did. And then you led Headwaters? Mm-hmm. I led Headwaters. I was uh, 29 years old and uh, running a community foundation that does amazing social justice work. I was a couple months into the job. I had a post-it note on my computer that said, learn how endowments work. Because <laughs> I was responsible for the endowment. I had no idea how it worked. And then the stock market collapsed. Mm -hmm. So this was in 2008. And our our endowment lost 30 to 50% of its value. And we were trying to be a good grant maker that did multi-year grants and really invest in an organization. Suddenly, we didn't have money to give away. And that is not a good place to be as a foundation. And so during that time, I by Hampenstats ran into a book about futurism Mm. and it was about how to use futurism during times of crisis for a competitive business advantage and I read that book from front to back and I was like we're in a time of crisis we need an advantage how do we do (laughs) I wish I would have knew this was coming (laughs) exactly and so um the the book really had flash foresight helped me to understand that we needed to bring these tools to our grantees and We had a lot of conversations with them where we said, this is going to be a rough ride and it's probably going to be a rough ride for a really long time. You are doing 
the most important work in our community, economic justice work, racial justice work. They were being called to do the best work of their careers, and we did not have resources to give them. And so what we asked our grantees to do is to develop a shared vision of the future. So previously, we sort of sprinkled a thousand seeds, as many organizations do, and the organizations felt like they were competing against each other for those resources. Suddenly, we were saying, if there is a coalition of you working on what to do with the foreclosure crisis, uh, we'll fund the coalition and all the organizations will get funding. And so in the year and a half after we started bringing those tools, our grantees had 10 legislative wins, the most in our organization's history including alternative teacher certification to diversify the teaching force in Minnesota, uh, a homeowner's bill of rights, the first in the country to deal with the mortgage foreclosure crisis, and then marriage equity in the state of Minnesota. So I am really proud of the work that our grantees did to build a better future. And then that set me on a path to learn as much as I could about futurism tools and then teach those tools to people that work in the sector. So can we talk about your best friend, Richard Branson? Oh, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Your BFF. So you ended up on his island. How and what happened now? A couple times going again next year. So um, I had the pleasure of receiving a Bush Fellowship, which is an amazing opportunity. My goal of the Bush Fellowship was to build my futurism skills. And when we first met uh, to sort of lay out your, your learning plan, They said, who do you want to network with? And people were like, oh, there's so-and-so at the U of M that's really great, and I'd love to meet this author that lives in Boston. And I was sitting there thinking, who is the hardest person (laughs) that I can think to meet that will show me that if I focus my attention and use the benefit of this fellowship, anything is possible. And if anything's possible, then I need to try to start making a bigger impact in the field. And I had been a huge fan of Richard Branson's philanthropy. He is trying to solve global crisis. He's trying to clean the ocean. He's trying to end incarceration. He is working on some of the biggest issues and he leverages his 300 plus companies to be able to make that happen. Um, and so I was like, I want to meet with Richard Branson. And people were like, we don't have a Richard Branson connection for you. And I give a ton of credit to Jen Ford Reedy, who is the president of the Bush Foundation. We had dinner that night and she said, I heard you would like to meet with Richard. But what, what is this about? What's going on? And I said, I think he's got this amazing view of the future of philanthropy that I want to get to the bottom of. Um, but I don't know how to meet with him. And she said, well, have you thought about it at all? And I said, he does this conference on his island that he charges like $50,000 for for three days as a fundraiser for for his foundation. Uh, But that's the only way, and that's ridiculous. And she goes, well, you have $100,000 because that's how much the Bush Fellowship is. And I was like, if you think I'm spending (laughs) $50,000 for three days to meet this man, you've lost your mind. She said, I didn't say you had to. I said you could, which is literally the cruelest thing that you can say to somebody. Mm -hmm. It's like, Mm -hmm. this is actually on you. You have to decide if you want to do this, do this. Um, and I was like, I, can't, I cannot, the cheapness in me will not allow me to do this. And so the the cohort and my friends knew that this was a goal and I was trying to figure out a way. And a couple months later, he was speaking at the Council on Foundations Conference and I had great relationships with the Council of Foundations. I was running the Minnesota Council on Foundations then. And um, I got all these emails that were like, girl, your guys come into the thing. You gotta, you gotta figure it out. And so I reached out to uh, the CEO that that I knew, and I said, I am planning on interviewing Richard Branson at your conference. You let me know the best time to do that. (laughs) And she said, okay, cool. And she sent me to the communications person um, who was doing more of the day-to-day stuff, and we talked. And within five minutes, he knew that I actually had no real plan to make this happen. And he had wanted to talk to me because he was having trouble getting stuff scheduled and thought I had some sort of in. And I'm like, well, I talked to somebody at the foundation. Uh, and he was like, that is not who does his scheduling. And I'm like, no, but I know. Let's just figure <laughs> out when I'm going to sit down. So uh, I was really embarrassed and defeated because it's like these are my like professional contacts and they know that I'm completely full of it mm-hmm. and I had a great coach that does thought leadership work that I was working with and I'm like this embarrassing thing happened um and she said Richard Branson's on social media like make the case that you should interview him like lay out here's all the other people that I've interviewed here's what I'm going to do with this information figure out what his what his in is to try to talk to philanthropy and what I had realized is that 
everybody that interviews Richard Branson wants to know how'd you get so rich. That's mm-hmm. like, that's all they want to talk about. Oh, I heard you got a cool island. And, you know, he'd like to kiteboard. Tell us about that. Nobody asks him about his philanthropy. And that's how he spends about 70% of his time. And mm-hmm. so I did not put it on social media because that would have been too embarrassing. But I created this two-pager that said, here's who I am. Here is the audience that I work with um, through my blog and through other places. Here's the networks that I'm a part of. Here's how I'm going to use this information to try to influence the future of philanthropy. Can I have 15 minutes of your time while you are here for this conference? And I sent it to the person that knew that I was full of it and his boss, who did not know I was full of it, who then forwarded it to the scheduling person at Virgin that was like, cool, 15 minutes is fine. Um, And so was able to sit down with him. The interview was amazing and a really great opportunity, but the end of it, I felt really disappointed and I couldn't figure out why. Like with yourself or with, like it wasn't enough time? Like what was disappointing? It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And when, as I was digging into it, what I finally realized is that when I was 16, I saw Mariah Carey on Cribs where she was at Necker Island. <laughs> and when I, when I had in my head what this conversation was going to look like. It was not in a conference room in DC. It was on Necker Island. And so I was like, you, that's like the firstest of first world problems to Mm -hmm. be disappointed Mm -hmm. that you didn't get to have this great conversation in that way. Like let go of that. But it just, it kind of kept on sitting there gnawing. And, um, a couple months later, one of the futurism networks that I'm a part of said, Hey, we're having a convening on Necker Island. We're talking about the future of doing good. Are you interested in going? And I was like, yes. And I speak on that. Can I be a speaker? So then they discounted my rate. I went to the yeah. island. I actually think I had the opportunity to attend that I did not go, did I? You did not go. That was, that was probably a mistake, yeah? It was a mistake. So it is a, it's a great place, and I've been back. Uh, I've been there twice so far. I'm bringing a group of black and brown entrepreneurs there. Am I an entrepreneur? Next year, you could be. <laughs> We can talk. We can talk about that offline. Um, okay. But it is. A, it's an amazing place, and it's an amazing time to just get to spend with him and learn how he operates and works in the world. And I learned a ton about his philanthropy and the change that he's trying to create, and how he, as a human being, can like sit in a hammock and run three hundred companies that are all doing great change in the world. Um, it's a great model for lots of us. I mean, what I love about this story is, I mean, there's so many of us that think, you know, this is what I want to get done, right? Like, it's sort of the permission to dream big. Like, I mean, I think that we sort of censor our own dreams back, right? And we're often just a couple of people away from getting to where we want to get Mm -hmm. to. Yeah. And, or even from an organizational perspective, I mean, we've, we've ran organizations and we've been inside of organizations Mm -hmm. and we've been in new spaces and we've had to, you know, make introduction to people and figure out how to get crafty around it. And I think that, you know, there's lots of folks sitting in very different seats listening to this, trying to figure out how do they make their next move. Yeah. And sometimes you just got to make it. Yeah. You, we don't dream big enough. And I, the, the advice that I really hold close is if somebody said, you know, this weekend you can get a free trip to Cincinnati, I'd be like, okay, but I was going to go grocery shopping. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But if somebody said free trip to San Diego, suddenly I'm, I'm cleaning my schedule. I'm making things work. And I think it's the same with our goals. If you set little, easy-to-reach incremental goals for yourself, fine. If you set big, hairy, audacious goals, you are going to do what it takes to get there, and it's going to be worth the effort. So you have had this platform of conversations with Shonda. What are you hoping to see as a result of these conversations? What's the change that you want to see in the world as a result of these? Well, that's a good question. You know, it's very funny because the way that these conversations evolved was through my curiosity, Mm -hmm. right? Through my love of learning, through my um, intention of wanting to be as proximate and as close to the issues that I can, um, because it's incredibly important in the role that I have, right? And we talked about sort of being in the balcony and being able to see Um, what's happening in the sector, Mm -hmm. that you can get really caught up in meetings, you can get very caught up in the process and forget sort of the humanity, the stories, the practice of learning and and being intentional. So really part of it was deeply personal in my commitment to staying a student Mm -hmm. while leading. So that is the first and foremost. 
Um, the other, and I say this often, is that there are some real issues that we need to wrestle with in our world and in our state, um, in our communities. And um, we often are doing them in our own head. We are doing those in communities of comfort. Yes. Right? Yes. I can talk about race with other black women, and I struggle to do so with a yeah. level of comfort with people that are outside of my identities. Yeah. And so what does it look like for us to have um, deeper conversations, meaningful, meaningful conversations outside of our own communities of comfort, yeah. right? Because we need to begin to do that in our workplaces and in philanthropy in particular, where we are making a lot of decisions and yield a lot, yield a lot of influence mm -hmm. that if we are uncomfortable personally having difficult conversations, then how can we get into difficult places yeah. to make the type of change that's necessary? And so in my wildest imagination, we have created more space where those conversations are happening so that we are getting to the issues of race. We're getting to the, the issues around gender. Yeah. We are creating space for people to lead fully so that we can have more impact and our community members can do better, yeah. right? That we can stop talking about disparities, but we can talk about how do we make more people's dreams come true in our community, right? That we can stop talking about people and communities by deficit. Yeah. Um, because that's exhausting and it's not, it's not hopeful. Yeah. Right. And there's way too many um, possibilities for it to be dragged down. Yeah. We spend so much time loving the problem where we just, let me describe the gap is this big and it is so terrible. And the, the trick in the social sector is, Doing that feels like you're actually doing something, but you're not accomplishing anything. So you've used up all of your energy and your mental strength to describe current conditions, and you put none of that effort towards making them different. And so I think what these sort of conversations create is a, a space where people can get out of that loving the problem space and start to radically imagine something different. We have to build our radical imagination as people because mm -hmm. um, that's the only way to create change. Yeah, I was thinking about what is the guy from um, the Manchester Guild? Um, Bill, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Bill Strickland. Strickland. Yep. So he has a saying where he would say, the only thing wrong with poor people is that they don't have any money. Yep. Right. Like, period. That's it. And so we often talk about people that don't have resources as though they have all these other problems. Yeah. Right. Money and solves most of those problems. Money. Money can be helpful. And like we can talk about class, but it doesn't mean that there's not a groundedness around values. Like, I mean, there's there's just so many things. But I think that what what it does when he says that is it has you examine the assumptions that you make about people that lack resources. Yes. Right. It has you examine um, what communities that have been underinvested in um, deserve. Yeah. Right. Like, why don't they deserve this fountain? Mm -hmm. Right. Like what he would say. Right. And yes. and why don't they deserve to have um, a park or mm -hmm. why don't these kids deserve to have safe space? Yeah. Um, and so I appreciate the framing when it is about what's possible. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the more that we can talk about that and, you know, one of the other conversations that, you know, I would hear quite often, Trista, was you know, all we're doing is talking, we need to get to action. And I'm like, yeah, but are we really talking about the right things? Are we really getting to the question that we need to solve? Yeah. And are we really being honest? Yeah. Right. We can have a very dishonest conversation and we can move to action and we're solving the wrong problem. Yeah. And so what does it mean for us to to create the courage? Right. And the discipline to stay in the space. Yeah. There, um, there's a book called uh, How We Show Up by Mia Birdsong mm -hmm. that is about connection and relationship and why as humans we crave that so much and we've been missing it because in the United States everybody's on their own and we're so independent and we don't need anybody. We need people. And especially when you're creating change, none of us can do it alone. There is not a foundation in the world, no matter how large it is, that can solve the issues that they're working on alone. It is through connection and shared purpose and deep, deep relationships and trust that change happens. 
And I think what the pandemic has brought us is a period of disconnection. And we've lost a lot of relationships and connections during this time. How do we rebuild that? What does that look like as we move forward? And how are we thoughtful in the rebuilding about getting outside of your comfort zone? Who's somebody that thinks of the world differently than I do? How do I make sure that I'm pulling them into my network? Richard Branson does not look at the world like I do. He has an entirely different perspective. But mm-hmm. to spend a teeny bit of time seeing how he sees the world, it makes my vision a little bit bigger about what's possible. And I think in our in our own networking build, network building, how do we make sure that we've got those unusual perspectives? Isn't that true? I mean, I've never had a problem sitting across from someone that disagrees with my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've never had a problem disagreeing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I have a I have a good friend that you know, Sarah Lieben, mm-hmm. that uh, she'll go, tell me more. People will say the craziest thing in the world. She's just curious. And we went to the uh, the, the state fair once, and um, we went by one of the booths, and there was a black man that was in front of the Republican booth wearing a head-to-toe Trump outfit. And I said, don't. We are, we are here for corn dogs, and we are here for, do not go ask, don't go, and beeline right over there. Tell me about what you're doing here. Tell me what you think. Tell me why you're a supporter. Tell, you know, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And we learned an interesting story about his life and his perspective, and I would have never had that perspective if she hadn't have been willing to push both of us outside mm-hmm. of our, our comfort zone. So to sit across from somebody that looks at the world differently, to understand why, and to suddenly have a little bit bigger view of what's possible and what's in common, I think is an important thing for us to Yeah, to it's build. a gift. It really is a gift. So as we close, tell me, do you have, like, what was your best leadership advice? Can you, can you boil that down? Oh, that's a good one. I think it is about living in the intersection of what you love and what you're great at and what the world needs. And if you can sit in that intersection, anything is possible, but you have to take the time to deeply understand yourself, to know what those skills are and to understand what the world needs and to know what you love. What are the things that you just do because you're used to doing it? What are the things that bring you absolute joy as you are doing that work? do a lot more of that. The world just, they need more people that are lit up doing the things that they need to do. We don't all need to be doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. More people that are lit up. Thank you, Trista Harris. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And that's Trista Harris and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. If you enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. And of course, if you want to follow Shonda or the Minneapolis Foundation on Twitter or Instagram, that's Shonda S. Baker or MPLS Foundation.